1: Broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin.
0: Hello America, Mark Levin here, broadcasting again from the state of Israel. Tomorrow's July 4th, I'll be back Monday in the United States, broadcasting from there, but right now I have a tremendous guest. United States Ambassador to Israel, David Freeman. How are you, sir?
2: Mark, I'm great, and greetings
0: from Jerusalem. Let's let's tell the American people a little bit
2: about your background. Tell us your education, where you grew up, and so forth. I grew up on Long Island. I, was, uh, I am the son of a, uh, a really terrific rabbi who passed away about 20 years ago. The great disappointment of my career is that he didn't get the chance to see me serve as the ambassador to Israel, he would have gotten a huge thrill from it. Uh, But he was a great man. He taught me a lot. He taught me to love Israel. He taught me to love America. And uh, together with my mother, they gave me a great foundation. And then they sent me to some pretty good schools, you know, Ivy League schools, college and law school. practiced law for 35 years, and um, and then uh, I got to know President Trump reasonably well. I mean, very well. We became friends. I know him 20 years. And uh, he asked me to be the ambassador to Israel because, as he said to me, he wanted someone who would really solidify, to a certain extent repair, the relationship between the United States and Israel. And that's a, a very fast-forward uh, description.
0: Well, I've got to know you. You're a good man. <clears throat> You're a great American patriot. You love the United States, and you love the alliance between America and Israel. And this is something you're very, very focused on and you've achieved with the president of the United States and others on his staff a great deal in a very short period of time. Why do you think that is?
2: I think the first thing is uh, we have a courageous president. Um, he's willing to make the right decisions. He's willing to live with the consequences. Uh, you know, there's no risk-free decision uh, in life. Everything you do has upside and downside. Um most leaders that I've witnessed uh, get very nervous about downsides. They they want to know that they can do something and there'll be no consequences. And that's just not the way life works. The president is willing to um, assess a situation and make a decision. When it came to, you know, we'll talk about this more, Jerusalem or the Golan Heights or the JCPOA or any of the other important decisions he made with regard to Israel, uh, I think he recognized in all cases that... Um, you know, there could be some uh, some blowback. There would be people that disagreed with him. But he really has the courage of his convictions, and I really give him all the credit.
0: You've known him several decades. Do you know him to be this committed to the American-Israeli relation, or as it uh, since he's been president of the United States, you think?
2: No, you know, we've talked about Israel uh, long before he had entered politics. Uh, he has great respect for the country. He understands uh, how Israel has prevailed against the odds, how in a neighborhood so different than the United States, so much riskier, uh, so much more fraught with danger than the United States, it has managed not just to survive, but to flourish, to have a world-class economy, to lead the world in certain technologies, and um, you know he, he values achievement, he values success, and he also values the, um, you know, the historical uh, return of the Jewish people uh, to Zion, which uh, you know they prayed for for 2,000 years. All of those factors, uh, I think, play heavily upon his thinking.
0: You work closely with the president, Jason Greenblatt. Who's Jason Greenblatt?
2: Well, Jason's also a guy I know for a long time. Jason wor- had worked uh, as the uh, general counsel of the Trump Organization. I got to know him through... Uh, some business dealings. Uh, He is a a straight shooter, honest, loyal, uh, incredibly intelligent uh, lawyer who also has a very uh, deep uh, understanding of the Israeli-U.S. relationship.
0: And what is his role
2: in this administration? Well, Jason's maybe got the toughest role because Jason's the peace envoy. You know, that's his specific role. Uh, As the ambassador to Israel, I work in that space, but I have other jobs. Jared, Obviously, works in the space. He has other jobs, but Jason's job is to try to do something which has never been done before, which is to bring peace between Israel and the Palestinians. A very tough job.
0: And you work with you mentioned Jared Kushner too. Yes, and you've known him a long time.
2: I do. Yes, and, and he's I know his involved family.
0: in this area too.
2: He is, and he uh, he has uh, you know broad relations throughout the world, uh, deeper and broader than Jason or I, and he uh, brings that. Uh, those relationships and, and, a, and a very, very strong intellect uh, to, the, uh, to the task of seeking peace. Again, really tough job.
0: So you work as a team, pretty much.
2: I think we're probably the only uh, you know, political team in the history of Washington that has maintained uh, incredible uh, loyalty and friendship to each other and to the president. With all the leaks the president had over the first two years, you know, they never came from us. Uh, you'll never see anything off the record, obviously not on the record, but even off the record, in which any of us criticize each other. um, We work together, we uh, resolve our issues, and we keep it to ourselves.
0: I want to take the Syriotim here. How did it come to pass that the president decides, I want to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel? He campaigned on it, but others have campaigned on it too. How did that come to pass, and how did you learn of
2: this? Well, it's something we've talked about. Uh, Before he was elected, if you look at the uh, press release that came out uh, on December 15th of 2016, before he took office, when he nominated me to the position, uh, I stated in the press release how I was looking forward to serving our country from an embassy in Jerusalem. And he, of course, authorized that statement. And so it's been on our plate for a very long time. Uh, You know, I've spoken with him about Jerusalem and its importance to Israel. Its significance to the Jewish people, its significance to the Christian world. For uh, you know, as long as we've talked about Israel, and it's been many years. And I always thought he would do it. I thought he might even have done it earlier. I mean, I think it was uh, something I was really confident would happen.
0: He told me he came under enormous pressure not to do it.
2: Oh, he did. He did from many many countries, from many many uh, politicians, from many pundits. You know, virtually every. Um, envoy or you know talking head uh, that had uh, you know been in this field uh, uh, of course I hope not referring to you of course of course not but uh, you know there, there were there were many people many many people who told him it was gonna set the world on fire. you can't do it. it's a mistake. Uh, you got to get something from Israel as part of it and, and and make them concede a bunch of things that would frankly have led to their destruction. Uh, he heard it all. From lots of people, and um, and of course, he and I discussed it at length, um, along with Jared, with Jason, with the uh, advisors he had at the time. Not everybody inside the uh, White House was in favor of it. Some pretty powerful people were against it, but um, uh, I think he listened uh, to his gut. Um, Look, you know, on so many levels, it was the right thing for him to do. You know, when he came into office. He was elected because he wasn't a politician. You know, Obama, Bush, Clinton, they could all make promises, and nobody expected them to keep them because that's part of what it means to run for president. Uh, President Trump, uh, I think people were electing him because they expected him to keep his promises. So leaving aside the substance of the decision, making a promise and not keeping it, I thought would have much greater adverse consequences for the president because that's not who he was. He wasn't a politician. And um, uh, beyond that, I think, apart from, again, the incredible importance of recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital, um, it was fulfilling the, the will of the American people who had, whose representatives had voted overwhelmingly for years to do this. Um, and it sent a message to, you know, whether it's uh, Iran, uh, North Korea, any else of our enemies, that... The president was going to stand with its allies, and it wasn't going to flinch from the threats of its enemies. So, on so many different levels, it was a profound and important decision, and uh, and it couldn't have worked that better.
0: Why is it important to the United States that Jerusalem be recognized as the capital of Israel?
2: So, you know, I look I look at this in sort of two uh, two buckets. There's the um there's there's the there's the um, the heart of America and there's the, the heart and soul of America and then there's the kind of raw national interests of America so let's talk about the heart and the soul first you know our country our country's history is so closely tied with the you know ancient biblical principles the judeo-christian values upon which it was founded you know our Declaration of Independence speaks to um, certain, unalienable rights endowed by our creator right now they included life liberty pursuit of happiness uh, others um, but they weren't just rights that our founding fathers thought were you know politically expedient or a good idea Um, they were endowed by God right which means that they're not subject to political vagaries they're not subject they're not subject to um, um, you know any kind of retreat well, you know, how did our founding fathers know the rights that God you know, that God wanted for us? Well, they read the Bible. You know, and where did the word of the Bible come from? It came from Jerusalem. You know, Isaiah says the word of the word comes from Jerusalem. That's the American DNA. That's not just Israel. That's our American DNA. So from the, purpose, from the perspective of the heart and soul of America, Jerusalem's the capital. Now, beyond that, I mean, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital is the best thing that we could have done to achieve peace in this region, because we're sending a clear message to the Palestinians. You don't have a veto on where the United States elects to build its embassy. That's our choice. It's not yours. And I think uh, the president's predecessors empowered the Palestinians with a full sense of power and a full sense of leverage. I think it made achieving peace much less likely.
0: This is a very important point that I want to pursue when we return. Also, the movement of the embassy, how that occurred. We'll be right back. Since its founding in 1844, Hillsdale College has provided students with sound learning of the kind essential to preserving our civil and religious liberty. Now I want to tell you about Imprimus, the free monthly speech digest of Hillsdale College. Imprimus is dedicated to educating citizens and promoting civil and religious liberty by covering important cultural, economic, political, and educational issues. First published in 1972, Imprimus is one of America's most widely read publications in support of liberty. With more subscribers, 3.9 million, than the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And recent Imprimus publications have addressed dot hillsdale dot edu. Welcome to Hillsdale. Here with the U.S. Ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, we were talking about Jerusalem and the significance of Jerusalem, and I had a break. Go right ahead.
2: Well, you know, the pilgrims came to the United States thinking they were creating the new Jerusalem. Ulysses Grant, Mark Twain, visited Jerusalem. Abraham Lincoln wished he would have been able to visit Jerusalem. We set up a, a consulate in Jerusalem in 1844, 104 years before the State of Israel, because the United States has had a, uh, a love affair with Jerusalem, a fantasy and, a, and an obsession even about Jerusalem since its founding. And the, the key thing about Jerusalem is that the word itself, Jerusalem, means city of peace. But Jerusalem has been anything but a city of peace. You know, for the 3,500 years that it's been been around, things changed in 1967 when Jerusalem was reuni- reunified under uh, Israeli control. For the first time, Jews, Muslims, and Christians were able to worship together. And I know you're, you've just been there over the last few days. The old city of Jerusalem is one square kilometer. That's all it is. In that one square kilometer, you have some of the holiest places to the three major monotheistic Abrahamic faiths Um, until Israel was uh, in control. Uh, It was a constant uh, process of somebody being up, somebody being down, someone being in or out. And now you go there and, you know, there's millions of pilgrims coming every year to the city of Jerusalem. And they're all, you know, in this tiny little spot they're all worshiping their faiths peacefully. You know, are there occasional flare-ups? Rarely. But they're also handled, you know, promptly and humanely. It's a, it's, it's a miracle what's happening in Jerusalem. And um, it's only happening because the Israelis, for the first time uh, in history, in a, in a very, very long and ancient history, have managed to balance uh, the, the competing interests in a way that everybody gets to come and visit um, in safety.
0: We were at an event together, among others, City of David. Yes, Why were we there, and what is the City of David?
2: Well, the City of David is a a once-in-a-century archaeological discovery. And, uh, you know, one thing you need to understand about the Jewish history of Jerusalem, Um, it's an unpleasant history because almost everything Jewish about Jerusalem has been destroyed. Over the last three thousand years, the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. The second temple was destroyed by the Romans. Uh, more recently, synagogues were destroyed by the Jordanians when they had control of uh, Jerusalem. So, a lot of our history, and I'm speaking now uh, as a son of a rabbi and a Jew, a lot of our history is buried, and um, and so when we find it, it's very meaningful to us because we have a long, proud ancient history documented in the Bible. And this City of David um, discovery really brings the Bible back to life because and it started when a, a sewage pipe broke in a neighborhood, and when they came to fix it, they realized what they were sitting on top of. Uh, it's uh, In the first place, it's a large, almost an Olympic-sized pool called the uh, Pool of Siloam. Uh, it's called Brechat HaShiloach in Hebrew. And um, that's where all the pilgrims from all around uh, the world many Jewish, many not Jewish, because non-Jews also came to Jerusalem three times a year for the major Jewish festivals, they would all purify themselves in this pool. And once they saw the pool, and it was significantly downhill from the temple, they kept looking and they said, well, there had to be a way for them to get from the pool to the temple. And they saw a completely intact underground, underground road with the same flagstones that appear uh, up by the, um, the walls of the old city. And what they discovered was the actual road from the pool that ascended up to the temple that all the pilgrims and, you know, uh, Josephus writes that there's, there were like two and a half million a year coming to Jerusalem. This is where they walked. And this, of course, would include uh, Jesus, who came to the temple uh, as a Jew uh, during the holidays and, you know, his attendance at the temple is well documented in, uh, in numerous writings. So you have the ability in this archaeological find not just to look at a broken shard of glass or an ancient coin, but to actually immerse yourself in history 2,500 years ago, 2,000 years ago, and to walk the road that, you know, the ancient uh, Jewish people, the ancient civilizations uh, had the privilege to walk. And it's, it's, uh, it's some, like nothing else I've ever seen.
0: And you were there – other dignitaries from America were there. Yes. And what did the New York Times say about you?
2: Uh, it definitely wasn't good. I think they said I had taken a uh, sledgehammer to diplomacy, if I recall something like that. Silly. But you were so criticized. Was, of course, I was criticized. Um, Why? Because the New York Times and many of their uh, many of their uh, sympathizers think that there's something wrong with uh, uncovering Jewish history in Jerusalem, because it will offend uh, non-Jews. Uh, it doesn't offend Christians. They think it will offend those of the, of the Muslim faith, that somehow uh, we would be discovering ancient artifacts of the Jewish people.
0: I want to continue with this, as well as other matters when we return, because the real reason they didn't want this known or reported as the archaeological activity in Athens and Rome and so forth, is because it demonstrates, as you just said, a fact, a scientific fact ...that the Jews were there. Correct. We'll be right back. You know, our nation's oldest colleges were founded to teach students to seek truth, recognize what's beautiful, and hold up what is good. But the vast majority of them have abandoned their missions, locked in the grip of political correctness. They no longer allow free and open discourse. Rejecting the idea of objective truth, they peddle moral and cultural relativism. Thankfully, none of this applies to Hillsdale College... For almost two centuries, Hillsdale has remained true to its original mission to provide sound learning of the kind essential to preserving civil and religious liberty and intelligent piety. Now, as Hillsdale celebrates its 175th year, it remains committed to offering its students the very best liberal arts education in the land, as well as to extending its mission nationwide through its many outreach efforts on behalf of liberty.
1: Call in now eight seven seven three eight one three eight one one.
0: We're all getting a great lesson from Ambassador Freeman, the American ambassador to Israel here. It is amazing, you're not just a diplomat, but you're a historian. I mean you really understand the Bible, you really understand what's going on in this part of the world. Fantastic appointment by our president of the United States. So where we left off, I'm sitting there, others are sitting there, we're walking the road. That so many millions had walked, you can touch it, feel it, see it. It's indisputable. You come under attack; the whole event comes under attack from the New York Times and the Palestinians,
2: and the Washington Post.
0: The Washington Post. Uh, once I read the Times, that was enough. You know. <laughs> Tell me about when when the Israelis control this area versus when others control this area.
2: Well, look. Um, Israel got control of, uh, was able to unify Jerusalem in 1967. From 1948 until 1967, those 19 years, it was controlled by Jordan. In 1948, uh, at the War of Independence, just before that, the British uh, took all the Jews out of Jerusalem uh, who had been living there for, you know, they and their ancestors for centuries and said, we can't defend you here. So Jewish presence in the old city of Jerusalem ended. The Jordanians took control for 19 years. They really didn't do anything with Jerusalem. In other words, they didn't change their capital Jerusalem. They kept their capital in Amman. The Western Wall, which is the last remnant of, uh, of uh, Jewish life in the old city, essentially became uh, fell into complete disrepair. Uh, nobody could go visit it. Um, and then in 1967, um, the Israeli Defense Forces... Uh, regain control of the old city. Now, of course, they rebuilt the uh, the Western Wall. They created a beautiful plaza. But what's interesting is what what they didn't do. What they didn't do was to exercise control over the Al-Aqsa Mosque or the Dome of the Rock. I mean, they could if they certainly had the military power to do that. And uh, that, that paradigm, that regime has existed to this day, which is that the um, Al-Aqsa and the Dome of the Rock remain the Muslim holy shrines that is administered uh, essentially, by the Jordanians now. Um, if you go into the old city, um, there's 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 incredible Christian holy sites. The, the, the greatest of which is the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Anybody can go there. You can walk in there, you know, dressed in you know traditional Muslim garb or traditional Jewish garb or or any other garb. Anybody can go there. Uh, the Western Wall. Anybody can go there. I mean, it's 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 open to all. When it comes to the Muslim uh, holy shrines, there are very uh, specific visiting hours for non-believers. They have to go through a separate fence where they are screened, you know, through metal detectors. Uh, none of that happens with the, uh, those of the Muslim faith. So what Israel has actually done in the old city of Jerusalem is it's given the Muslim worshipers better rights than anyone else. I mean, it, they, have, they have the best rights to their holy shrines relative to the other major faiths. And yet, um, whenever there's a desire to kind of foment unrest uh, against Israel, and, and Hamas just did it this past week, they used my visit to the um, to the city of David uh, to create a video, and they put uh, they put a sign. I saw the Arabic; it was translated for me. It said, "Jerusalem is in danger. Save the mosque." Now, um, you know, it's barbaric. It's uh, You know, it's despicable to try to create violence, when exactly the opposite is true, that Israel affords its Muslim community better rights to its shrines than either the Christians or the Jews.
0: Let's move the embassy. So you've decided, the president decides, I'm going to move the embassy. I said I'd move the embassy. I'm going to move the embassy. You got a lot of pushback on that too, right?
2: Oh, sure. Sure.
0: Including within the United States.
2: Uh, I recall it well.
0: And so we have an embassy now in Jerusalem, and how many other countries have embassies in Jerusalem?
2: One, Guatemala.
0: Guatemala. He's a wonderful ambassador to Israel, who, who I met as well, and he's very proud of it. He's great. But why haven't other countries joined?
2: Well, again, this is in the first instance, I think, a testament to the greatness of the United States. Um, we make decisions on the basis of what's what's right and what's wrong, or at least we should. That's certainly what we did here. Uh, I've spoken to a lot of countries about moving the embassy. A lot of them have approached me. A lot of the countries in Eastern Europe are interested. Uh, but in, in a lot of these cases, uh, and I'm not necessarily criticizing the practice, but in a lot of these cases, it's, you know, what do we get for it? You know, what's in it for us? You know, we're going to lose trade with which countries. We're going to gain trade with these countries. So it becomes a political calculation our recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel was not a political calculation. We did it because it was the right thing to do, because 85% of our representatives voted to recognize Jerusalem in 1995. Uh, I'm not sure why it took so long. I have an idea. Um, but um, that's why we're, we're there. And I think other countries, maybe because they're weaker, maybe because they have, they're have, more at the mercy of, uh, of other countries, uh, haven't done it. But We can do these things. The United States can lead. And when the United States leads, I believe other countries will eventually follow.
0: Then the president decides, you know, the Golan Heights, he says, we're going to recognize a fact. And that is Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. Tell me about that.
2: Well, that to me is is an easier call, just because there's really no competing argument against it. You know, uh, think of Who holds the competing claim to the Golan Heights? Bashar Assad, somebody who gassed 500, you know, murdered 500 million, 500,000 of his uh, citizens, displaced another million of his citizens in one of the most ruthless, brutal regimes in the world. And this is incredibly strategic territory that enables Israel to maintain the high ground against a very unstable uh, and, uh, you know, venal Malign uh, entity, um, it's kind of hard to see any argument why Israel shouldn't have sovereignty over the Golan. Although, you know, the same people that complained about Jerusalem were out in force complaining about that, this decision as well.
0: I can imagine you're the favorite ambassador of the State Department. You don't need to get into that. <laughs>
2: I think I am now because yeah. uh, we have a great Secretary of State and he and, well, I, that's true. He and I get along very well. Yeah. I, I have the highest respect for him.
0: Let me ask you about this. Not to be provocative. Do you think the Palestinian authority or the Palestinian leadership, you think they want peace?
2: Um, I think the Palestinian leadership in the first instance wants what's best for the Palestinian leadership. You can see that because uh, in the Palestinian authority, wealth is completely concentrated among the political elite. Uh, You know, you have... uh, Uh, Arafat's wife still, you know, hanging around the Champs-Élysées in Paris, uh, living off of money that we probably gave her. Uh, Abbas and his kids and his friends are all extremely wealthy. Uh, That's not indicative of uh, people that care about their people. Uh, The fact that they wouldn't attend the conference in Bahrain tells me they don't care about their people because this was an initiative to help the Palestinian people. The fact that they don't have a transparent... Uh, financial system, the fact that they don't have a practice of human rights, they don't have a justice system, they pull people off the street and arrest them without notice and incarcerate them for years without notice because they don't like what they're saying. Um, so all those facts tell me that uh, the leadership has failed. And um, I don't know whether there's a way to rehabilitate the leadership or just wait till the new ones come along, but they're a far way off from being considered people who care about their people.
0: And then you have Hamas uh, with ties to Hezbollah and Iran.
2: Yeah, the the Palestinian Authority that I just described, those are the good ones, Mm -hmm. right? We have Hamas, which is a militant terrorist organization that, you know, hangs gays from the tops of buildings that, you know, uh, performs unspeakable acts of cruelty upon their own people shoots rockets indiscriminately into civilian populations in Israel. Um, there are 30,000 people holding 2 million people hostage. Uh, one of the most uh, evil, brutal regimes in the world.
0: A couple of years ago, in particular, Hamas is firing thousands of missiles into Israel. Israel's responding. They're trying to respond as they usually do, tactically, carefully. And I was here. And I had just been at the move of the embassy, was here for 24 hours or so, flew back, was flying back through Toronto. There wasn't a direct flight from Washington back then. And I'm watching the news and the way it's being reported. I said, wait a minute, I was just there. You know, it's not like I've been to Israel a million times. This is my third time. I said, that did not happen. And Hamas plays to the New York Times. Hamas plays to the Western media. And you were so furious, you spoke out and you actually wrote an op-ed about it.
2: Yeah, because, first of all, uh, Hamas had been rioting for weeks before, uh, and they were were rioting because uh, uh, Abbas was not paying their wages. This was not some principled uh, decision to fight the embassy move. They were already showing up and rioting, and of course, the day the embassy moved, they added to the messaging to include the embassy. But uh, it was a violent day. They tried to storm uh, the border. Uh, They were... uh, they didn't keep it a secret that if they stormed the border, that their whole jo- goal was to go out and kill Jews, kill Israelis. And, um, and a good number of them, I think, uh, between 50 and 60 were killed. They all, with, with maybe one or two exceptions, they were all Hamas terrorists, members of Hamas. I mean, this was not, you know, there were tens of thousands of people there. And the 50 or 60 who were killed were all Hamas terrorists. And yet, if you read the New York Times, you would think, number one, that they were protesting against the embassy. Number two, that they were down the block. You know, and we were inhuman because we were having a ceremony when they were miles and miles away, and nobody could see or hear it. Um, and um, you know, the the only ones that were killed were really the worst of the worst. Uh, and and you know, one of the things I've challenged the New York Times and others is, you know, do some research. Show me a less lethal way to protect the border. I believe Israel wants to kill, injure, maim as few people as possible. You guys are smart. you got access to all kinds of research and all kinds of experts. Show me a less lethal way to protect the border against people rushing it to murder Jews. And no one's come up with anything.
0: All right. We'll be right back. Mark Levin. Every human being has a common problem. How do I live well? Our happiness and well-being depends on how we answer that question. Hillsdale College President Larry Arne argues that the best book ever written on this subject is Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. And a new free online course from Hillsdale College shares Aristotle's teachings that will help you lead the most complete, happy life possible. Register for this free course, Introduction to Aristotle's Ethics, How to Lead a Good Life, featuring lessons from the greatest self-help book ever written at levinforhillsdale.com. In just 10 on-demand videos, each only 30 minutes long, you'll learn how to confront the chief obstacles to happiness and make the choices that build good character. Aristotle presents a guide for securing a virtuous life. And if you take this free course from Hillsdale and heed Aristotle's advice, your life will change for the better. You can learn how to lead a good life just as every Hillsdale College student does. It's yours for free. At levinforhillsdale.com, that's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. All right, we're here in Israel, I want to thank the Christian Broadcasting Network, by the way, for letting us borrow their studios, our great ambassador to Israel from the United States. Now, David Friedman, a lot of people will say, okay, what's the big deal? what's in it for the United States to be so close to Israel? What's your answer to that?
2: Well, there's a lot in it. Even if you don't uh, subscribe to any of the uh, Judeo-Christian commonality, any of the historical um, connections, uh, which no one has an obligation to do. I mean, everyone is free to view history, view religion uh, their own way. But um, we get an enormous amount of benefit from Israel. Um, First of all, take, take the simplest thing. Um- The State of Israel, uh, the Israeli intelligence services have directly um, directly, uh, through their cooperation with the Department with our Department of Homeland Security, have directly caused the um, either the, the prior arrest or the interdiction or the uh, or prevented uh, numerous terrorist attacks on our homeland. So more people are alive today in America because of the State of Israel. That would be enough, but it's there's much more than that. The Israeli um, uh, intel, the Mossad, the the Shin Bet, the uh, the uh, IDF intelligence, cooperates with the United States. Frankly, like I'm not aware of any other country, in terms of what they share with the United States, they have eyes on our enemies in some respects better than we do, and they share it with us, and they keep us safe. Um, people refer to the $3.8 billion in military funding that we give Israel every year. It's a fraction compared to uh, the investment we have in bases in, in Germany, in Korea, in Qatar, throughout the world. And the difference between all those bases and Israel? We don't put a single soldier's life at risk in Israel. So we get all the benefits of having a forward position in the Middle East and Israel without a single soldier's life being at risk, and it's much cheaper, much cheaper. So even those who you know, don't have any emotional ties to Israel, and I would include many people in the Department of Defense in that category, these are soldiers, they, they think as they should, they think of how to protect the United States. They are some of the most supportive uh, in the United States of, of our support for Israel. So, uh, and, and it's what's interesting is that 25 years ago, I think the relationship was probably less reciprocal. Uh, you know, I think in those days, um, um, Israel was more needy than they are today and probably had less to offer. But, you know, I'll give you a great example just from a couple of weeks ago. Bill Ford, who is the uh, chairman of uh, the Ford Motor Company, right, an iconic American company, a guy whose great grandfather is known for having had uh, having not been a big fan of the Jews. Bill Ford comes to Israel now a few times a year. Bill Ford and I met uh, in Tel Aviv when Ford opened up the Ford Research Center in Tel Aviv, and he told me that Israel, the Israel high tech industry, uh, provides better opportunities, uh, uh, better synergies for American companies than any any high tech center in the United States. And he's coming here, you know, three times a year. So uh, things have changed in the relationship, and they've changed very much. Uh, in a way that I think more than justifies uh, our support for Israel. We we, we did it in the past, and I think it was a noble thing that we did to protect the state of Israel when it really had no other friends. Uh, But we're getting a huge return on those early investments.
0: July 4th. It's, It's tomorrow. Yep. You led a celebration of July 4th yesterday. Tell us about that.
2: It was the first time in the history of uh, the state of Israel that we held our July 4th party in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, what do you think of it? Did you like it? It was fantastic.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. You're there. The prime minister's there. All kinds of notable people.
2: Uh, I was just thrilled with it. Yeah. I mean, we had we worked on it. My staff worked on it. God bless them for, for months and months. And they pulled off, I thought, just an incredible event. I think we had about 3,000 people. Um, I'm sure it was... Uh, up there, among the very, very top July Fourth celebrations, among any embassy, any U.S. embassy in the world, and it was a great tribute to America. I was really proud of uh, of how we presented our nation to the state of Israel, and of course, state of Israel loves the United States like no other country, and they love our president. Uh, you know, he has a north of a seventy percent approval rating here, and. Um, And when people, you know, I'm always amazed that people in the United States say, well, you know, Trump isn't really that great for Israel. And I say, well, shouldn't the Israelis, you know, be the experts on what's great for Israel? And the Israelis are voting, you know, their their view is, you know, 70 or more percent of Israelis, I've seen numbers like 80 percent of Israelis, have enormous support for President Trump. And those are people on the left as well as people on the right.
0: Well, you're a great American patriot. Thank you. You're doing great service to your country. And it's a pleasure to call you friend. Thank you, Mark. Great Thank to Thank you, be Ambassador here. Friedman. It's been a pleasure. All right. We'll be right back from the state of Israel in just a few minutes.
1: He's here. He's here. Now broadcasting from the underground command post deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello,
0: America. Mark Levin here from the great state of Israel. Actually, I'm in the studios of the Christian Broadcasting Network. CBN, always wonderful to me here. A great guest. You love this guest two years ago. Dory Gold, most of you know who he is, president, Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs, but you've done a lot. Uh, you worked for uh, Ariel Sharon, former prime minister. You worked for Prime Minister Netanyahu, and that's just the beginning of it. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about, you're a your great historian, first of all, and I wanted to talk to you specifically about Iran. And um, Iran, Hezbollah, now, Hamas, Iran now threatening the United States. Well, has been for a while, but now you can see they knocked out one of our drones. Iran constantly threatening its neighbors. Yemen, Iraq, Syria, obviously Israel threatening the United States. Walk us through a little bit of history of this and what's taking place with Iran or historically Persia.
3: You know, Mark, there are countries that are satisfied with the borders they have. And then there are countries that dream about recovering borders they believe were once under their control and should come under their control again. Iran, modern Iran, modern Shiite Iran, came into existence in the um, 16th century uh, when Shiism was made the official state religion. And the borders of what was called the Safavid Empire... That was the original Iranian Shiite Empire stretched halfway into Afghanistan so that the language spoken in Western Afghanistan is basically Persian, Farsi, with a little bit of a local accent. And it stretches across Iran and it stretched into Iraq. Baghdad was part of the Safavid Persian Empire. And it included territory in Syria. So it's not surprising to see that the Iranians today have territorial claims to Syria. We know that the Iranians regard Bahrain as Iranian territory, and they have said so repeatedly. But they have claims to other parts of the Persian Gulf. This is a country that sees itself as a truncated country that seeks to acquire what it believes it once had.
0: Mm -hmm. And how's it doing?
3: I think it's doing very well. Mm -hmm. It's doing well because, for example, Europeans don't want to believe what I just said. And they want to trade with Iran. You know, they want to sell Renault and Peugeot cars and Volkswagens, and they need that market. And um, therefore, when they have to come to grips with what Iran is and the extent of the Iranian threat to European security, it's bad news. It's bad commercial news. Iran is doing a lot of
0: bad things in a lot of countries, but it seems to have a particular hate for the state of Israel, I think primarily, and secondarily the United States. Why is that?
3: I think it's primarily the United States and secondarily Israel. Um, But that doesn't matter. We're both in the doghouse in terms of Iran's um, plans for global mischief. I mean, Iran is not just sitting to the south of Israel in Hamas, in Hamas land, in Gaza, and in Lebanon and Syria in the north of Israel. It's also sitting in Latin America. What's it doing there? I remember reading a testimony of Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton. Who? We're talking Iran. We're not going to get into those other subjects. But Hillary Clinton, she was Secretary of State. She was giving testimony on the Hill. And she was talking about, frankly and openly, that the Iranians were building a new embassy in Nicaragua. And it was well beyond in size what normally a state would need if you wanted to build an embassy in Nicaragua. And she was hinting pretty strongly that the Iranians had plans for doing things that they shouldn't be doing in Central America. So you have a problem with Iran in Central America, in South America, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you found Hezbollah units in Canada. So you got them on both sides. And that is a country that's posing a tremendous threat But it will pose even a greater threat in the future. What's Hezbollah? Back in um, the early 1980s, remember, the Iranian revolution is in 1979. And uh, Ayatollah Khomeini wanted to have, let's call it, the legs of the Iranian octopus extend around the world. And so he sought out Shi'ite communities where Shi'ite Islam was practiced. And he sought to build a network of militancy. Now, in Lebanon, you already had an organization called Amal, for those who like getting into the details of these things. But the, the Shi'ite organization in Lebanon did not accept what Khomeini was pushing. That is, that he was personally the head of all Shiites around the world. And so he sought a new organization to compete with Amal. And it was called Hezbollah, which means Party of God. <coughs> and these guys were militants. They were trained in uh, terror techniques. The ones who trained them were the PLO in Lebanon. And uh, they have engaged in some of the worst terrorism that America has experienced. you remember the attack against the Marine Corps barracks in Beirut uh, in 1983? Hezbollah had not yet been officially declared. Let's call it proto-Hezbollah. They were in formation. And Hezbollah became involved in uh, helping Iran project its power all over the Middle East. Remember, Iranians are not Arabs. They speak Farsi. They speak Persian. If you want to communicate with Arabs in Iraq or Arabs in Syria, you need somebody who's fluent in the, in the Arabic language. Hezbollah offered that bridge to the Arab world for Iran.
0: So your best estimate, how many of these terrorists are there in Hezbollah? Tens of thousands. Tens of thousands. Concentrated although all over the world in southern Lebanon, correct?
3: Oh, that's one place, but you have... Shiite communities in many parts of the world. Let me tell you something nobody is focusing on except a few experts. Syria, the largest minority, not minority, the largest group of uh, in Syria up until the last 10 years were the Sunni Arabs. Sunni Arabs had about 65% of the country. Comes the Arab Spring, and what does Iran do? It makes sure that its forces in Syria evict Sunni Arabs—not all of them. It can't get to everyone—and they bring in Shiites from two countries, from three countries. One is Shiites from Iraq, another is Shiites from Afghanistan, and the third is Shiites from Pakistan. And they have moved in. They have created new Shiite militias in Syria. And they bring in their families because you have all these empty houses from the Sunnis that have left. So that is what Iran is doing. And it is actively uh, advancing a Shiite revolution across the Middle East.
0: Now, the Iran deal, which a lot of people in our country thought was a pretty cool deal. You've written it's not a pretty good deal. It wasn't a pretty good deal. And you specifically attack three areas. The Sunset Clause, ballistic missiles, ICBMs, and
3: verification. Explain. Let's start with the Sunset Clause. I mean, if you study diplomacy, you take a course at UCLA, Ohio State, you know, wherever you're studying, the history of diplomacy, do you see in, in agreements that are reached international agreements a clause saying... After five years, after 10 years, this treaty will no longer be in force. It's ridiculous. So it's called a sunset clause. It reminds me of um, a carton of milk. When you go to the grocery and you buy a carton of milk, it says on it, expires August 30th. So this was an agreement with expiration dates on it. And I thought that that was simply dangerous. Because it meant to Iran, Iran, you can have a nuclear weapon. Just wait a little bit. Sit tight. So that's the first thing. That's the issue of the Sunset Clause. Missiles. I was Israel's ambassador to the United Nations um, back in the 1990s. And we dealt with arms control over Iraq's arsenal. Now, the United Nations in those days said Iraq can't have nuclear weapons, can't have biological weapons, and it also said it can't have ballistic missiles capable of flying beyond 150 kilometers, because that was known to be a weapon of mass destruction. Whoever negotiated that Iran deal, the JCPOA, either forgot or intentionally did not put ballistic missiles into that understanding. And therefore, it was seriously impaired. Just compare what the world community demanded of Iraq ten years earlier and what it demanded of Iran. When we come back,
0: the third leg, verification. Because the supporters of this deal say there's really there was never any problem with verification. We could verify what was taking place. We'll be back in a minute.
4: Mark
0: Levin. Go to BrickHouseLevin.com, BrickHouse, L-E-V-I-N.com, offer code LEVIN. Now, wrote this great book in 2009, The Rise of Nuclear Iran, so you know a little bit of what you're talking about. (laughs) The third piece, verification.
3: Well, the Iran deal deals with two types of weapons, Weapon systems, you know, largely. One is declared weapons, and the other is undeclared weapons. Now, to have a, a, a reasonable verification system for declared weapons, weapons that Iran has to um, declare before the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency, that is no big deal. The real name of the game is undeclared weapons. Why? Because if you go back over all these great, great weapon systems or facilities, nuclear facilities that Iran was caught red-handed having, like the Natanz, uh, the Natanz uh, enrichment system, or the Underground Mountain, where Iran was also enriching uranium, and a number of these other ones that were declared, They were, excuse me, they were not declared. They were caught red-handed. Where Iran is going to put its assets is in things it doesn't declare. And there was no reliable system for dealing with the undeclared weapons or the undeclared facilities. And that, for me, was extremely suspicious and made the whole verification of that agreement highly questionable.
0: Well, you know, a lot of Americans are probably scratching their heads now. Sunset clause, ballistic missiles not covered, verification, obvious problem. So why cut a deal like this? From
3: your perspective here, why was this deal cut? You know, this gets more into intellectual currents. I'm sorry to use that kind of an expression. In modern parlance, that doesn't get you very far. But that's what happened here. My study of what happened to America and Iran went like this. Right after 9-11, there was a group of great powers, the countries bordering on Afghanistan, plus Russia and the United States, who met regularly at the United Nations. And they talked about what they could do to deal with the threat of the Taliban. This included Russia and the United States. It also included Iran, which borders Afghanistan. And the Iranians tried to open a channel to the United States. They supplied intelligence. Go bomb here and you'll hit the Taliban's, one of the Taliban's most important camps. And this this information went from the UN to the Department of Defense. And was very promising for somebody who believed that Iran could be turned around. Not everybody was a sucker in Washington. And one of the people, it might surprise you, who resisted the temptation to see Iran as a potential ally of the United States was Secretary of State Colin Powell. He didn't buy it. He thought they were being sold a bill of goods. And there were others like him who formed a camp in the US US, um, uh, defense establishment. But there were others who were convinced that Iran was on the verge of becoming America's greatest ally. They would write articles. They write op-eds in the New York Times. They would go on Charlie Rose. And they made a lot of trouble. And they sold the bill of goods to a number of elites in the American political system, including President Obama. So if you believe That Iran is potentially a moderate country who's ready to come around. You look for an Iran deal to facilitate that new relationship. That's how the Iran deal was born.
0: We have you here. I want to get into some other areas. My family and I visited Hebron. What's the history? Who's buried there? What's the history of that city?
3: Open the Bible. In the Bible, it states that Abraham bought a burial plot for his family. And as a result, Abraham is buried in Hebron, Isaac is buried in Hebron, and so is Jacob. Joseph, who was a, um, a uh, son of Jacob, was buried in Nablus, in Shechem. But the forefathers, the founding fathers of the Jewish faith, were buried in heaven. And matriarchs, too. And the matriarchs. Sarah. Sarah. Rebecca. And Rachel.
0: Who controls most of that city today?
3: That city uh, is under the jurisdiction of the Palestinian Authority. However, even more radical elements are very... um, have a lot of influence there, including Hamas. Hamas has a lot of influence in that town.
0: That's pretty amazing. That even after the Six-Day War, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, there's what? There's a couple hundred Jewish families there?
3: Prior to the 1967 war, yeah, Jews were not allowed. You know, you have to walk upstairs to go to the tombs. Jews were not allowed to walk above the seventh step. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And it had to be overturned. And Israel overturned it.
0: Saw a lot of IDF soldiers there. Yes. To protect the real handful of Jewish families that are still there. It's remarkable. We come back, I want to ask you about Bethlehem. Who controls Bethlehem? We know who was born there. We'll be right back. 833 ring BHN. Get 15% off your first order with promo code Levin. That's brickhouse, L-E-V-I-N dot com or call 833 ring B-H-N promo code Levin.
1: Mark Levin, a champion of freedom.
4: You know, you're one of the greatest champions of freedom in this country, if not in the English-speaking world, Mark.
3: Call Mark at 877-381-3811.
0: Whatever you're doing to celebrate America's birthday, make sure you stop by bowlandbranch.com. Bowl and Branch makes the sheets loved by three U.S. presidents, and they're celebrating the 4th of July with 20% off everything during their Stars and Stripes sales. Bowling Branch organic sheets start out super soft. They get softer and softer over time. Now, these are $1,000 sheets for just a couple hundred bucks. Everything Bowling Branch makes is beautifully and thoughtfully designed and super comfortable. 97% of customers surveyed said they sleep better on Bowling Branch. Go to BowlingBranch.com and see for yourself because everything is 20% off during the Stars and Stripes sale, from their sheets to their plush towels, pillows, pillowcases, and even their world-class mattress. Shipping is always free, and right now you'll get 20% off everything, but only during the Bolan Branch Stars and Stripes sales, spelled B-O-L-L, and Branch.com. Save 20% today, plus free shipping at com. Dory Gold. You're the high muckety-muck of the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs. A lot of people turn to you for insight, policy, so forth and so on. We talked about Hebron. When we were there, we were told there are 85 Jewish families left there. And every time they sneeze, the UN gets involved. Or when the Obama administration was there, they couldn't build even an extension to an apartment house there. And yet the forefathers of Judaism are buried there correct it's an amazing thing and to go there it's an amazing thing we had to go in a vehicle that was rock proof uh, everywhere you go there's idf soldiers uh, in order to protect this little area uh, and it's remarkable and then there's bethlehem the birthplace of jesus who who runs that city now
3: bethlehem like hebron is under the jurisdiction of the palestinian authority and there are direct implications of that fact for example, Bethlehem used to always have a Christian majority. Naturally, Christians from all over the world were attracted to a place where Jesus was born. During the period of Yasser Arafat, the Palestinian Authority made sure to fill Bethlehem with Muslim families, largely from Hebron, and change the demographic balance in that city. And many Christians have run away. they moved to countries in South America but they uh, have been displeased with these demographic shifts in Hebron remember under the Oslo agreements that Israel signed uh, during the period of President Bill Clinton um, the Palestinian authority of Yasser Arafat had control over this town and still does today the Temple Mount
0: Very controversial, what goes on on the Temple Mount. What goes on on the Temple Mount?
3: Well, first of all, we're dealing, because we have to deal with the Palestinians, and they have their uh, um, special relationship with the Temple Mount. Um, Systematically, the, the Palestinian leadership has attempted to take over the Temple Mount, which is under Israeli sovereignty. And uh, in doing so, they've sought to delegitimize the Jewish or Christian connections with the heart of Jerusalem. So, for example, at Camp David, back in the year 2000, when President Clinton held a summit with Ehud Barak, our prime minister, and with Yasser Arafat, Arafat all of a sudden turns to President Clinton and says, there never was a temple in the Temple Mount. There never was a temple in Jerusalem. And he took that declaration of his, and he had all his lieutenants speak about it. There's Nabil Shaf, the guy who went to University of Pennsylvania. He would talk about that. There was Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas. He would say, no temple in Jerusalem. And then this ridiculous assertion started spreading into American and British academia, And it started spreading into the media. I remember a New York Times article from 2010 uh, with the headline, um, the presence of uh, Jewish holy sites appears elusive. What does the word elusive mean? It means hard to prove. And so this Arafat idea started, its tentacles spread into all kinds of intellectual circles. And it's something that Israel has to fight as much as it fights the security issues, this term West Bank,
0: for what is historically known as Judean Samaria, where did this come from?
3: Um, well, you might remember what is geographically the West Bank. Uh, in the nineteen forty-eight, Israel's nineteen forty-eight War of Independence was invaded by the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, which was called Trans Jordan at the time. Those troops were under British command, in many cases, and uh, they took over the area. Since the Jordanian kingdom was based on the eastern side of the Jordan River, the East Bank, this area became known as the West Bank. And that's about it.
0: (laughs) Which is why I refuse to call it the West Bank. And yet, every American newspaper, most Israeli newspapers call it the West Bank it was the West Bank for 19 years it's always been Judea and Samaria aren't these all efforts to kind of blow out Jewish history to rewrite the history reliance on people not studying their own history let alone the history of other regions of the world and so this becomes repetitive then it becomes propaganda and then decisions are made based on these historical falsehoods.
3: No? Well, you know, you had a United, you had a UN Security Council resolution during the period between the Obama administration and the Trump administration, which declared that the Temple Mount, the Temple Mount was significant for Islam, and it eradicated any reference to Judaism or to Christianity. And yet this resolution passed the U.N. Security Council and it was pushed by the Palestinians and the Arab states at the time. Normally, a U.S. administration would have vetoed the resolution, as had occurred before. But there was something going on with the Obama administration in Israel that caused the administration not to veto this resolution, but to sit sit on its hands. And uh, i got to tell you just one other case that drives me nuts. It's a little bit obscure, but it's still meaningful. You know, um, right outside of Bethlehem is the burial place. We talked about the, the mothers of Judaism, of uh, Rachel, Rachel. And uh, it was always known as Rachel's tomb, this, this, this place where she was buried. Rachel's tomb. The the Muslims talked about Rachel's tomb. All of a sudden, in nineteen ninety six, the Palestinian Authority, which had jurisdiction there under the Oslo Agreements, started calling this tomb the Bilal bin Ribah tomb. Who the hell is Bilal bin Ribah? You should give away you should give away a mixer for anybody <laughs> who phones in. Bilal bin Ribah was the first Muazin, the first man who called the Muslims to prayer. At the time of Muhammad According to their tradition He's actually buried in Damascus They started calling this the Bilal bin Ribach tomb And In fact It was picked up by UNESCO They started calling it The Rachel's tomb Slash Bilal bin Ribach tomb So you can make up stories And if it advances your cause The United Nations will advance it And maybe people will forget that that was Rachel's tomb for a very long period of time. Last piece of information, at my center, we've got a guy who reads Ottoman Turkish. Ottoman Turkish, which is different from regular Turkish because the letters are in Arabic, but it's Turkish language. The um, sultan of the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century... Defined Rachel's tomb as Rachel's tomb, not as Bilal bin Ribach. If you said Bilal bin Ribach to the Ottoman Sultan, who is the head of all Sunni Muslims in the world, he'd look at you like, what are you talking about? So what I'm saying is that we're seeing fundamental ideas in the Middle East being shifted for political purpose. And that's a second war that exists, not just a military war. It's this war of ideas, which if Israel doesn't win... It's going to be very bad for Israel and bad for the West. We talked
0: briefly Monday about UNESCO. Uh, When we come back, I want to talk further about UNESCO, because UNESCO, this branch of the UN, tries to enshrine many of the lies about history that you've been talking about. We'll be right back. Mark Lovin. in here from Israel. You know, if you believe that you're not being snooped on, well, then I'm sorry to disappoint you, but you probably are. Hackers, governments, ad companies all slurp up your data. That's why I recommend getting the software that I trust to protect my online activity, ExpressVPN. Their apps use powerful encryption to secure your data, and ExpressVPN runs in the background of your computer or phone, and then you use the Internet just like you normally would. You download the app, click to connect, and you're protected. I never go online without ExpressVPN, and you shouldn't either. ExpressVPN is the fastest VPN, costs less than $7 a month, and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Take back your online privacy like I did with ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at mark. That's expressvpn.com slash mark for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash mark to learn more. All right. Doctor, you're a doctor. You're a PhD. I did it. And uh, we can still understand you. That's a good thing. Dory Gold, you're the president of the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs. By the way, you have a website. What's the website
3: address? www.jcpa.com. All
0: right, let's put that up there, Mr. Producer. All right, I wanted to talk briefly about Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the so-called West Bank, Hebron, UNESCO, what's going on here?
3: UNESCO is a, of course, United Nations organization based in Paris. It's supposed to deal with education. It's supposed to deal with culture. It's supposed to um, help um, the world understand the importance of certain holy sites and protect them. UNESCO doesn't protect holy sites. UNESCO doesn't lift a finger when holy sites are demolished, for example, by ISIS in Syria and Iraq or Uh, by the uh, Taliban in Afghanistan. What UNESCO has been doing is complaining about Israel, about uh, issues that aren't even a valid issue of complaint. And um, UNESCO has been passing resolutions that are there to rewrite history in a way that serves the... um, Afro-Asian majority in the United Nations system. Who are the
0: members of UNESCO? They're just different countries that are chosen by the UN? Different countries
3: that are chosen by the UN. Hmm. But the problem is that they're distorting history. For example, when they adopt resolutions that refuse to acknowledge your connection, the connection of the uh, uh, Christian West or the State of Israel, with a city like Jerusalem. And um, I think this has a corrosive effect because you begin to see that people have doubt. Doubt in um, our common Judeo-Christian narrative about Jerusalem and about ancient Israel. This is why when there are archaeological discoveries here in Jerusalem like that great tunnel that was just unveiled in the city of David that leads from the Siloam Spring up to the Temple Mount. Discoveries like that simply are slap in the face of to UNESCO and there's many more of them. do you know there's a professor at the University of Michigan who loves to say that you can't prove the connection that there was once even an ancient Jewish kingdom, here in Jerusalem. So then, in the city of David, what is found are the royal seals of the kings of Judah. And therefore, reality, as it's discovered here in the Middle East, completely contradicts what some parts of academia and international organizations that have become corrupt are asserting. And that's very important for our next generation and the generations afterwards who want to understand the truth um, to hear.
0: You know, it's amazing. I spoke to Ambassador Freeman about this as I read the New York Times coverage of the City of David event over the weekend. It's all about politics, all about what will the Palestinians think, all about their professed concerns about their foundations. And when you walk through that tunnel, you see the extent to which the archaeologists go to protect those homes 60 feet up with steel infrastructure. It is a painstaking, slow process to protect the homes you know, who, that are above ground. And then you see the, uh, the PA leadership dismiss it. But the Western media plays into this. The Western media never explains what the quote unquote West Bank is. let does give any perspective. We just spent a few minutes talking about Hebron. I'll bet my audience doesn't know a lot other than what's in the Bible about what's going on in Hebron. I'll bet Christians listening to this show don't know that the Palestinians control that city now, to the great detriment of the Christians who are scared to death there. I'll bet most people don't know this history. Is it because the media? And by the way, your country, the media is not so great either. As I, as I read these various publications, I, I say, where am I in Jordan? No, no, I'm reading this stuff, and it's really quite appalling. Is it the? And look, you you know more than just history. You you know, I don't want to drag you into political politics per se, but but still, current events are current events. What is driving this? Is it is 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 it a is a Is it a leftist ideology? What exactly is driving this? Because it cuts across countries, it cuts across newspapers, and so forth.
3: Look, I look at it this way there has been a miracle that has occurred in this country in 1948 when the Jewish people reestablished their ancient homeland and called it Israel. There are a lot of people who are upset with that development, some of them are Arabs. That's not a surprise. But some of them are in the Jewish world as well. And um, all of these, in a very similar fashion, try and poo-poo this historical achievement of resurrecting the state of Israel, of Israel developing a powerful army to protect its people, and against all odds, staying alive. But the people of Israel will do that. And their children will learn what the real history of Israel is. And hopefully they won't be, they won't have their direction altered by organizations like UNESCO and NGOs that are lying to the international community. Been a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Dory Gold,
0: president, Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs. Check out their website, folks, and I'll be right back.
1: In the bowels of a hidden bunker somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, America.
0: I am Mark Levin here in Israel. Now it's my turn this hour. I'm the special guest. I will be back on Monday broadcasting from the bunker in the United States. Uh, We're going to have a wonderful... Fourth of July Independence Day tomorrow, Israel does celebrate our independence. It's not like it's London over here. Um, It's Jerusalem. But I, I, I want to address a couple of issues. I've been grinding my teeth while sitting over here since that Democrat debate, the second one. Now, I'm sure you've heard a lot, but you haven't heard from me. And I want to talk to all you Levinites. And my purpose here isn't to be provocative, it's to be accurate, it's to be historical. We're not going to rewrite our American history, this isn't UNESCO, I'm not the Palestinian authority. We're going to talk about American history and how the left treats it. We're going to talk about Kamala Harris and busing. We're going to talk about all those things, because the truth shall set you free. First of all, I want to talk about Betsy Ross and her flag and Nike. We have a problem in this country with corporate America. There are a few exceptions, but that's the problem. The rule for corporate America is to bow to the left, and they bow to the left, and they push the left's agenda. You can see it on TV. You can hear it in ads. You can see it in newspapers and magazines, and now on your sneakers, So suddenly, Betsy Ross's flag is to be burned. Statues are to be pulled down. Books are to be burned. All these things are to take place. Not because the left finds these particular incidents to be outrageous, but because the left wants to rewrite American history. You know, people like me, constitutionalists, we say lay it all out. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Because in the end, you have an imperfect America, which is the greatest nation on the face of the earth. Which is why millions of people cheat and lie or risk their lives to come into this country from all walks of life. From every area of the world. All religions. No religion. They come to America. Now, some of them have good intentions and some of them don't. But they come to America. Now, I have to tell you, Kaepernick, Kamala Harris, they didn't found this great country. Honestly, they haven't done a damn thing for this great country. What the hell has Kamala Harris done for the African-American community? In fact, that community, as a result of her being attorney general and before that, DA of San Francisco, in many respects, is upset with her. What the hell has Kaepernick done? Read your Declaration of Independence. That is a statement of humanity. In fact, one of the greatest statements of humanity ever written. Read your Constitution. It is the greatest governing document ever, ever written. Because both of them recognize the individual. Both of them are intended to protect the individual and your unalienable rights. Yes, we've been imperfect, but we are constantly trying to perfect ourselves. These people will burn down our history. They would burn down our founding fathers. They would burn down our institutions and our customs and traditions. And they're doing it right in front of your eyes. Nike can go to hell. Who cares about Nike? A sneaker company doesn't dictate American history. Kaepernick is a reprobate. He's a malcontent. He's a miscreant. He's a fraud. That's a fact. And Kamala Harris is too. Kamala Harris is a, is a fraud, and CNN knows it, and MSNBC knows it. All the media know it, but you're not allowed to say it. You're not allowed to say it. it. It amazes me. We have something called the Democratic Party debates. Meanwhile, Betsy Ross's flag, that graphic on a sneaker, has to be eliminated from our culture. But the words Democratic Party... They proudly run for office under those words. The Democratic Party, the party of slavery, the party of segregation, the party of Jim Crow. That's the party, the party that has set this nation back historically like no other party. That's the party that gave birth to the Klan. That party. That's the party all the way up to 1924 at the Democratic Convention at Madison Square Garden in New York City was called the Klan Bake, not the Clam Bake, the Klan Bake. You can go back on Google, look at the photos of all the white hoods and the white robes marching down the street in New York City. They didn't even get rid of their lynching provision in the Democratic Party Party policy position until about a hundred years ago is less than a hundred years ago actually this is the party now of Kamala Harris this is the party of the Democrat Party media Betsy Ross's flag has to be expunged from America you can't even put it on sneakers it's so bad Because they say white supremacists or Klansmen have used it. Well, what does that have to do with anything? They are deplorable. They are despicable. But I don't hear people saying ban the Democratic Party since it gave birth to the Klan. Now Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris didn't wasn't born into poverty. Kamala Harris wasn't bused to another school because they didn't have integration going on in Berkeley. They had a lot of busing going on in Berkeley and had been going on before Kamala Harris was bused. During her long two years in that city, before they went to Canada, her mother. Both of her parents, PhDs as I understand it, very well off, and now she's Rosa Parks. I've never seen anything like this. The media know the real story. They know she's not. And I have to give it to Don Lemon. And trust me when I tell you this. It gives me angina when I say it. Trust me when I tell you this. This jerk made more sense than he's ever made in his life. When he was debating somebody by the name of April Ryan. Look, it's plain English. It's fact. The progressive left like to say, we only deal in fact and knowledge and science when it comes to climate change. They never deal in fact and knowledge and science. They always deal in myths and threats and provocations. They would like nothing more than to run me off out of the radio business. But I know what the word Africa means. And I know what the word American means. And I've lived long enough to understand that African-American is the term today that replaced the term black American to more specifically identify people with roots that go back to the African continent who were wrongly shipped to the United States as slaves. That's our history. That's the truth. So why then do CNN and MSNBC, the New York Slimes and the Washington Compost, and the rest of the Democrat Party— Want to pretend that's not true. Kamala Harris is a black American. One parent was Indian, or is, and one is Jamaican. Jamaica's not in Africa. India's not in Africa. Why is it so controversial to make this point? Kamala Harris is trying to present herself as somebody she's not. Nobody denies that she's a black American, why would you? Why would you? But why does she claim and her supporters and her surrogates in the media claim otherwise and give her a different nomenclature? This identity politics stuff has gotten so completely out of control, even Don Lemon at CNN is confused. Even Don Lemon at CNN is confused. Or is he? Cut whatever it is, Mr. Medusa. Go ahead. Number one, she is a black
5: woman. She's a mixed race woman. When you see her, you see her blackness. But she is also South Asian. Her mom is South Asian and her dad is Jamaican. April, April, April. Let me me, me, listen. More power to her. And I think it's great. That is that should be enough. Listen, it is enough that she's a black woman. We are not a monolith. No no no, exactly. no, 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 no. They, they, they did the same no, thing. No, 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 do, no, no. I think, you, I like think you're not, you're not Go hearing ahead. what people are saying. The people who are saying, is she black enough? That's bull. That's BS. But to, uh, to, to want what a saying. distinction to say, the- is she African-American or is she black? Or is she whatever that what's, there is nothing wrong with that. There is a difference between being African-American and being black. Um, people, people, Latino people are people of color, but they're not black. They're brown people. She is a woman okay? of color, but she is a black woman. Let's okay, let's,
0: let's. First of all, listen to the insanity. Listen to the insanity. Go ahead.
5: I agree with human. that, but now, is she African-American? No, 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 no no, 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 no. But is she African-American? There's a difference. There's nothing wrong with that. No one is trying so to take anything away from her. Let's go down into her lineage. I think you're falling into, 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 into a trap that. All she had to do was say, no. I am black, no, I'm but not I'm fall- not African-American. That's it. Donna, In the story. I I'm not falling into a trap. I'm not falling into Let trap. Let me finish. By the way, notice
0: some white guys trying to... Wait a minute now. Wait a minute. I think there's... Shut up. We're talking. Go ahead. Falling into a trap by
5: that when, when, when she goes down her lineage, many Africans landed on in Jamaica and all these other Caribbean islands. So she could indeed Jamaica's be America. African American mixed with other
0: races, but she Jamaica's is a, not America. But she is a black woman. she Jamaica was born
5: here. Let's stop. Let
0: Why is this such an emotional fight? You understand what I'm saying? Because they're so wedded to identity politics, so wedded to identity. And I listened to this and I figured the Democrats keep talking about reparations. How are we ever going to figure that out? What if somebody is of Indian and Jamaican ancestry? First generation or second generation. The Democrats have raised all this. Now you're African. No, I'm not African. That one's African. No, i black, black America and reparation. This is the party that drags us into these arguments all the time. They don't wanna have a debate about substance, a debate, not about identity. You can have a debate about history, go for it. A debate about liberty, a debate about a colorblind society, a debate about tremendous American progress, a debate about all the people who wanna come into this country, color, whatever color, no color, whatever it is. Here we are, ladies and gentlemen, in the world of the Democrat party, always, in the world of the Democrat Party, always not about what's between your ears or your heart or your soul. Always about pigmentation. Always. Kamala Harris is not an African American. She's a black American. But the bottom line is, she's an American. She's an American. That's the real answer. And yet... Look what she tried to do to Joe Biden. Joe Biden, she says, you know, you're not a racist. And then she goes on to try and paint him as a racist. I am no Joe Biden fan. He's no racist. And what she did was disgusting. I'll be right back. Mark
4: Levin.
0: out there. Here I am. I believe it's 7,000 miles away, give or take, from the bunker at CBN, Christian Broadcasting Network. Wonderful hosts here. We can't thank them enough. And I go on Amazon.com for the first time in about a week and I see Unfreedom of the Press is number 20. What's, what's going on here? They got books with foul language up there. You've got Dr. Seuss up there. I'm thinking to myself, Levinites. Those of you who do not have a copy of Unfreedom of the Press, you hear what they do. You hear what they're doing. Even when I'm away, all this is going on. Trust me. Look at the five-star comments, 97% five-star comments on Amazon.com. I'm strongly encouraging you to get a copy of this book. Best time is July 4th. It's, It's Independence Day. Well, we want to be independent from a Democrat Party media. It is about promoting the Democrat Party agenda. Listen to these people. Listen to how they talk to each other even. We want a free press, a truly free press. You've even heard the people I've interviewed over the course of two days, right? Monday and today. You see what a a press that is about ideology, propaganda, and the left-wing agenda can do to a country, to a people, including us. So please, now, go to Amazon.com or any major bookstore or warehouse store. They're still there. Get your copy of Unfreedom of the Press. This is a crucial right that belongs to you and me. Barack Milhouse, Benito Obama. Remember him? Big fan of Robert Byrd. Remember him? The uh, head muckety-muck of the claim in West Virginia. I'll tell you what's very, very weird about that, too. West Virginia broke off from Virginia during the Civil War, mostly to join the Union. But there's Robert Byrd. Robert Byrd was the majority leader of the Democrat Party, the minority leader of the Democrat Party, the minority whip of the Democrat Party, the majority whip of the Democrat Party. Robert Byrd is the longest serving member of the United States Senate ever, a Democrat. And Robert Byrd, even in his old age, he was chairman or ranking member of the Senate Appropriations Committee, the Democrat Party embraced him throughout, including Ted Kennedy, including um, Patrick Leahy. But they never, they never questioned that again. The Democrat Party, you're going to get rid of Betsy Ross's flag as a symbol now, but the Democrat Party marches on. And here's Obama. Pray, and I'm sure you've heard it, but you haven't heard it from me. July 2010. I have to admit, I was surprised when he did it. Embracing Robert Byrd's memorial service, as all Democrats did. Cut five. Go.
4: The distinguished gentleman from West Virginia could be found at his desk until the very end, doing the people's business, delivering soul-stirring speeches. A hint of the Appalachians in his voice.
0: Whoa, whoa, wait a hint of the Appalachians. It's the Appalachians. Hint of the Appalachians? Can you take that from the top, Mr. Producer?
4: The distinguished gentleman from West Virginia could be found at his desk until the very end doing the people's business. Delivering soul stirring speeches. A hint of the Appalachians.
0: Yeah, okay, stop. I was right. The Appalachians? Is that like a drink or something? An apple drink? It's the Appalachians. The Appalachians. All right. Take it from the top without interruption. Go ahead.
4: The distinguished gentleman from West Virginia could be found at his desk until the very end doing the people's business. Delivering soul stirring speeches. A hint of the Appalachians in his voice. Stabbing the air with his finger, fiery as ever. Years into his 10th decade. He was a Senate icon. He was a party leader. He was an elder statesman. And he was my friend.
0: That's how he'll remember him. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Joe Biden never said that to James Eastley or John Stennis or any of the old segregationists. That was Barack Melhouse Benito Obama. I believe he was president just a few years ago, right? Mark Levin,
1: tough as hell.
0: That's why I like Mark Levin. And I'm not sure a lot of people like him. He's tough as hell. But I like him. I love him. Call
3: in now, 877-381-3811.
0: I'll tell you something that was really, uh, for, for my family, quite profound yesterday. And I wish my parents had been around to see it. In the morning, out of the blue, the President of the United States tweets about unfreedom of the press. I hadn't talked to him. He didn't talk to me. I hadn't talked to any of his people. And just out of the goodness of his heart, he encourages people to get it. And I encourage you to do it, too, because it helps our country. It will help our Constitution, and it actually will help our president, too, who deserves our help. And then that night when we're celebrating July 4th on July 2nd by our wonderful ambassador, David Friedman, the prime minister of Israel, another great man, Benjamin Netanyahu. He's giving a speech, strong support of America, and he starts quoting the Declaration of Independence. And he says, <laughs> "I'm just standing there, life, liberty, and live in? No, no, no. So he's joking, because you know he was on the program, and he is a really great man, just like our president, fighting for liberty. I don't care what the media say. You ought to read the media here how they treat Netanyahu. It's the same damn thing. It's disgusting. Disgusting. But more on what we've been discussing in a moment. I hear all these Democrats talk about Medicare for all. When they aren't talking about Medicare at all. They're talking about government-run, centralized, iron-fisted, bureaucratically run national health care. Now, notice they talk about giving you health care. Not quality medical care. Health care. That is insurance. Insurance. Well, if insurance is worth crap, then insurance is worth crap. It doesn't mean anything. If you have to wait, (laughs) you can't get the drugs you need, there's rationing. Well, that's what we're in for. When you hear the term binding arbitration for drug pricing, don't be fooled. It's not what it sounds like. Binding arbitration is a cost-focused, not care-focused system where an unelected government entity will decide for America's seniors who rely on Medicare if a drug is too expensive for them to have. The effect will be the permanent and binding price controls I've been warning you about. Like the European socialist healthcare models, binding arbitration will deny patients the latest and best treatments. Imagine the nightmare of having unelected government bureaucrats deny your sick child or parent the drug that would save them because it's deemed too expensive. Fortunately, Americans have access to the most innovative drugs, Because up until now, we've had a free market system. But if dumb ideas like government-set price controls are imposed, we won't. Binding arbitration is drug price controls. The same bad idea under another name. Get the facts. Go to truehealthcarefacts.com, truehealthcarefacts.com. That's truehealthcarefacts.com. Now, if it wasn't bad enough, Kamala Harris has said not once but twice – that she supports modern-day federal government-ordered bussing. Listen to me. Modern-day federal government-ordered, that would be the Department of Education, bureaucrats sitting around, dividing up communities, deciding school lines, who's going to go where in your neighborhood. It was a complete, disaster in the 1960s and 70s. A complete disaster. The same Kamala Harris who wants to eliminate private health care. This is what we need to be debating. Their positions. Because most Americans honestly don't give a damn about skin color. We really don't. Despite what the media say. We really don't. But Kamala Harris has taken some of the most radical, moronic positions of any candidate. And so far, she's gotten away with it. She, listen to me, all you stupid liberals who think you're going to live one way while everybody lives another way. No, we go down, we're taking you down with us. Federally ordered Department of Education school busing. All of a sudden, climate change doesn't matter. All of a sudden, fuel doesn't matter. All of a sudden, the combustion engine doesn't matter. You know, pollution away. Who cares? We already had that experiment half a century ago. It was a disaster. And Kamala Harris supports it. Take note. Number one, not, she's not going to get the move to the middle. if She's the nominee. Number two, eliminate private health care. That means Medicare is gone. That means private health care. If you have a union contract with health care or any kind of contract with health care or employer health care, gone. Gone. I hope you're listening to me. You know, we stand for uh, the blue-collar union workers here, and uh, we believe in the middle class, and uh, we stand with the workers here. No, they don't. No, they don't. They stand with the stupid left-wing tenured professors. That's who they stand with. Against the American people. Against the American people. Forced school busing. Back. A failed experiment. Back. Back. Because the left, that's what they do. They take these failed experiments, whether it's been in this country or overseas, and they apply them again. Hey, we have a good idea. What is it? Destroy private health care and run it through government. You know, I love the British. But when I think of teeth and dental care, I don't think of the National Health Service. Do you? Since when did yellow teeth come into, uh, into fashion? I'm quite serious about all this. There's this guy, Michael Eric Dyson. Whenever you get into a race issue on the, on the MSNBC, this is the guy they call. This is a, he's a professor, tenured, no doubt, on the government dole, no doubt. This guy has a hate streak as long and as wide as it goes. He's got a chip on his shoulder that's like the old Mount McKinley. May I say, Mount Denali? Listen, to this guy. so a media outlet brings him on because they know what he's going to say. They know what a radical kooky is, and they want to promote what he has to say. Go ahead.
3: What
4: about the argument that some have made, um, this is PC culture run amok, if you will? If Nike wants to put this flag on their shoe, why are people so upset about it? Yeah, because, you know, words matter, symbols matter, too. Why don't we wear a swastika for July 4th? Because, I don't know, it makes makes a difference.
0: I'll, I'll tell you why, genius. I'll tell you why, genius. The swastika was the swastika of the Third Reich. And you're now comparing the Holocaust. You're now comparing the Holocaust to Betsy Ross's flag, which historically was used really in the lead-up and during the revolution. America is not the Third Reich, no matter how much propaganda you burp up in your classrooms or on TV. And I'm so sick and tired of the comparisons of America, American history, to Hitler, to the Holocaust, to genocide of this kind it's just disgusting. That's why. Meanwhile, do you know the the swastika has protected free speech? You're aware of that, right, in America? It's protected free speech. It's a symbol that's protected. Anyway, go ahead.
4: ...on somebody's lawn. Why don't we just have a Nike, you know, celebration of the... Cru- well, because those those symbols are symbols of hate. So we can take PC culture back. It's amazing... Betsy
0: Ross's flag, is that a symbol of hate today? Do people even think of it as a symbol of hate? Seriously. All of a sudden, it's a symbol of hate because Cabernack says so, and because this guy says so. And other media chime in. The group think pack mentality media jump in. All of a sudden, Betsy Ross is fly. because, you know, ladies, they have to blow out American history in order to create a meritopia where we have a centralized government, blockheads like this, masterminds, making decisions about how you're going to live, where you're going to live, where your children are going to go to college, where your children are going to go to public school, what kind of health care you're going to have, whether or not you can have cows and all the rest of it. You must destroy the American experiment. You must destroy the Declaration. You must destroy the Constitution. And these left-wing kooks, whatever their color, color be damned, these left-wing kooks hate America. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. It could be the modern-day American flag. It could be old glory. It doesn't matter. They hate it all. Go ahead.
4: Who cry the loudest about PC are the ones who didn't show up when the, the French first occurred, who, who didn't defend the people who were victims of white supremacy or racism or sexism or misogyny. But now pop up and now say all
0: this has to do with a sneaker. I mean, seriously, this guy, it's the same. Same verse. Same verse, chorus and the very all the same, same thing goes through the same litany. Why don't you talk about the various battles during the Civil War? Why don't you talk about the great Abraham Lincoln? Although I understand he's out now too, because he really, you know, he re- priority really wasn't taking out slavery; it was just the Union. We hear now. So, so Lincoln's no good anymore. Incredible. Go ahead.
4: It's not B two PC. If you ain't fought the battle, ah,
0: shut up, you idiot. There, I'm not being PC. I don't know how the hell you got. To- well, actually, I do. Okay, bring in Michael Eric Dyson, Professor Michael Eric Dyson. Whenever you have an issue on race, he'll straighten it all out. He'll clear it all up. Very level-headed, very temperate. Thank you, MSNBC. Another news site, right? No, wrong. Wrong. America is a magnificent country. It's a magnificent country. That's why none of the American haters go anywhere else but they stay here and many of them have the the most cozy jobs and live in the most luxurious environment i don't know about this guy i'm just saying live in most most of the luxurious environments of people who actually go and fight for this country as opposed to them who actually go fight for this country who break their backs working 12 15 hours a day who come into this country by hook or by crook if everybody believed as Michael Eric Dyson did, well we wouldn't have an immigration problem, would we? I'll be right back. Mark You know, if President Trump says America will never be a socialist country, he couldn't be more right. And that's why it's so troubling that a proposal from the Department of Health and Human Services would move us in that direction. The International Drug Pricing Index, that's what it's called, would adopt socialist price controls set by foreign countries. Today, Americans get access to cutting-edge therapies for diseases like cancer nearly two years before other countries. And the future holds incredible promise for fighting other quite serious diseases. The HHS proposal would cripple America's world-leading medical innovation. We would have fewer new cures and they'd be harder to obtain. We should control costs with market-based reforms by fostering competition and by making our other countries pay their fair share, not with socialist price controls. Keep America great by keeping American medical innovation great. Visit protectmypartb.org protectmypartb.org, paid for by Americans for tax reform. I want to talk about Antifa in the last moments we have. Antifa is a Marxist, terrorist, domestic organization. It is a violent organization. It had been given cover by CNN and other media outlets in the past. For all I know, I'm here in Israel, they're still doing it. This organization needs to be crushed. It needs to be crushed by federal law enforcement and state law enforcement. It is obvious that in some cities in this country, we have left-wing mob mayors and city councils that allow these marauders to go to these protests. And I don't give a damn who's protesting. To go in there and beat seriously Individuals who they target, including citizen journalists, including self-characterized mainstream journalists, but other citizens. But other citizens. This used to be understood in this country. This used to be understood in this country. And the media were slow to come to criticism. Let's be honest. Slow to come to criticism. You have these punks dressed in black. With hoods covering their faces, with masks covering their faces, because they're punks. And they come to these peaceful events, or at least most of them are, with locks, locks, actual locks in socks, with with knives, with poles, with baseball bats, and they're aiming for people's heads. They're aiming for their heads. Shouldn't there be a daily drumbeat in the Democrat Party press? They talk about violence. They talk about the tone. When, in fact, not only have some of these media outlets in the past encouraged this organization, the vast majority of them have sat idly still or quiet or dismissed them for what they've been doing. And they're going to continue to do it. And somebody's gonna get killed people have been horribly horribly assaulted and maimed and the media in this country a joke a disgusting pathetic joke how is it that organizations that are Marxist in orientation are given a effectively given a pass like this you do understand what Marxism has done throughout the world right You know, we conservatives, we want the Klan harshly dealt with. We want the neo-Nazis harshly dealt with. And we want Antifa harshly dealt with. We want all these organizations that undermine the civil society, that attack individual liberties. We want them all crushed, which is another reason why we support real law enforcement. In this country I just thought I'd make that clear because again here in Israel I've been watching this and I've been monitoring what the media are doing and it is a complete disgrace the FBI rather than infiltrating Trump's campaign should have been on top of Antifa oh yes it should have been there's a lot of good uses that we can put the FBI to. And most of the people, men and women in the FBI, know it, and they do it. But rather than chasing down a campaign that you disagree with, you should be going after these thugs, these animals who call themselves Antifa. They're anti-fascists. They are fascists. In every respect. People shouldn't have to take their lives in their own hands to protest People shouldn't have to take their lives in their own hands to speak at college campuses and universities. And yet they do, when they're conservatives, or when they're perceived as conservatives even. So much for academic freedom. So much for freedom of speech. So much for a free press. Ladies and gentlemen, have a wonderful Independence Day. We salute all the heroes that have fought to make this possible and all the heroes that are doing so today. I can't wait to see you again on Monday. I'll be back in America on TV and on radio. Hope you'll get your copy of Unfreedom of the Press. And God bless each and every one of you. Be well.
5: From
4: the Westwood One Podcast Network.